Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are in the midst of a series, and uh, we've called this series Strange New World. And again, I've shamelessly lifted the title from a book that I would encourage you to purchase by Carl Truman. Carl Truman is a professor and a author, theologian, uh, and just an all-around brilliant dude. Uh, and he wrote this book as really a, a condensed version of his larger academic version that I think was called The Triumph of the Therapeutic Self. I would encourage you to read both of those books. You can get them both on Audible if you're a listener rather than a reader. I, I tend to consume them in both ways, and I'll catch things that I won't catch in the other way. Uh, but he, he opens, the, the, the premise of his book is really what we've been addressing, and it's, it's, it's just such a, an appropriate uh, or a, a helpful way to enter into this subject. Uh, I'm going to propose the same question to you that he proposes in his book. He says, he talks about how a mere generation or two ago, if a man were to walk into a doctor's office and say, say, doctor, I have a problem. I'm a woman stuck in a man's body. The doctor would have said, yes, this is a problem. And we're going to send you to a psychiatrist or a psychologist to align your mind with your body. But today, a mere one or two generations later, if a man goes into a doctor's office and says, doctor, I have a problem. I'm a, man, a woman stuck in a man's body. The doctor is likely to agree that this is a problem, but say, instead, we're going to send you to a surgeon to align your body with your mind. And so what has brought us to this radical shift in ideology and uh, in addressing these types of issues, because that is a huge leap. And even the medical community, and I, I just want to, just as a, a, a cautionary statement, we need to understand that medicine and science is not, even scientists and doctors don't make their decisions from that place. The primary place we make our decisions from, whether theologian or scientist, is our underlying philosophy. Everybody has a philosophy. Everybody has a theology. If you get it from the Bible, you are safe. If you don't, look out. We've said this many times, and we've said it throughout this series, that ideas have consequences. And no ideas have more dangerous and radical, far-reaching consequences than theological ones. Ideas about God and ideas about other theological subjects. And so what brought us to this radical place? And in his book, he, Carl Truman takes us through a journey that I think is very, very helpful. And what I want to do this morning is kind of give an overview. I want to I connect some dots. And I really want to, uh, I, I hope our young people are catching this, this, uh, this series. And if you guys have any questions about any of this, man, grab me. And I will talk, my, I'll talk your ear off until you tell me to stop. But I want to really make sure that you're catching what I'm saying. And if you have questions or you disagree with me on something, press me on those things. I'd love to engage with you because you are dealing with this at a much closer range than many of us are. We are somewhat insulated. I hear a person after person has told me, Pastor, 
I'm so concerned about our culture, not for myself, but for my kids and my grandkids. I'm a, I like to think I'm a young man, <laughs> but I can see, I can see uh, old age and the end from here. It's in the distant future, but I can see it from here. But I am concerned for the next generation and the next. And so we need to understand how we got to this point, and we need to understand how we can engage people where they're coming from. It's not good enough for us to look at people and say, wow, they're crazy. Because you can't engage someone if you think they're crazy. If you think they're irrational, you won't even engage in a conversation because it's not going to go anywhere. They, they, they're, there's no rationale to their thinking. And what we need to understand is there is a rationale behind what is known as the LGBTQ movement and the trans movement. There is a, a rationale to this. And if we understand the rationale, we can engage people and talk to them. And really, that's the end zone. We want to be able to help people. We want to be able to engage people. We want to be the love of Jesus with skin on to those people that are hurting and broken and confused. And so, I want to do an overview this morning. Let, let's, let's jump into Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 18 on, make a few comments, and then I'm just going to jump into our series and kind of do an overview, a high-level overview. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. How? Because God has made it plain to them. Where? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Where? Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. That's a heavy passage. What Paul is saying is that everybody knows there is a God initially. And they have to do mental gymnastics to talk themselves out of it. The atheist says, I don't believe in God. God says, well, I don't believe in atheists. So we're even. Because creation itself has made very clear there is a God. Furthermore, it not only makes clear God's existence, it reveals his eternal power and his divine nature. Even the nature of God is made evident to a degree. Now this is what theologians call natural revelation. There is specific revelation, divine revelation in the scriptures. Really, you could make an argument for three forms of revelation. There is the revelation in creation, natural revelation, and the more you study creation, the more you must conclude there was a designer. The fact is, just little things like, if we were a little closer to the sun, we'd be crispy critters. A little farther from the sun, and we would have frozen to death centuries ago. The earth is just, the earth has the perfect balance to sustain life. Denoting the care that our benevolent creator created an environment that will sustain us. So there's natural revelation in 
nature itself, there's also the revelation of man made in God's image and even more so the believer being conformed to his, into his image. So we are a revelation of who God is. Now that, that, that image has been marred and hidden in the fallenness of man, but it doesn't mean it's been removed. We're like the coin, the, the lost coin. The coin still has the image on it. It just needs to be redeemed so it can be spent. And so man is a revelation. And then we have very specific revelation in the scriptures. The Bible is the source of our truth, our doctrine. And we line everything up with the word. And if it lines up with the word, we're safe. If it doesn't, you're not safe. Paul went as far as to say, let every... Let God be true and every man a liar. If I ever preach something from this, this pulpit that contradicts the word, consider me a liar and hold to the word. The Bible is our safety net. It is our, the, 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 uh, the plumb line by which we measure everything. And so we measure it over against the word. And now let me just pause there. We measure it by the word, not our interpretation of the word. Because sometimes our interpretation of the word can be wonky. So make sure you look at the text yourself. I've told you before, when people have come up to me and said, Pastor, what do we believe about? And it always kind of makes me nervous. I don't know what you believe. I can't tell you what you believe. I can tell you what I believe, and I can encourage you why I believe it and why I think you should but let God be true and every man a liar and know the word for yourself because the Bible is the revelation of truth. And so we have here this revelation in nature, the invisible qualities and God's divine nature and his eternal power have been clearly seen, being understood what, what has been made by, from what has been made so that people are without excuse. People say, well, what about those who have never heard the gospel? Why would God send them to hell for not hearing the gospel? He doesn't send people to hell for not hearing the gospel. He sends man to hell for rejecting him. And men are without excuse because there is, there is a revelation of God in nature. Am, am I saying that you can be saved without the gospel by recognizing God in nature? No, but you can cry out to the God of nature and God will get to you. And there are millions of stories all down through history. Just one interesting story. I was reading uh, uh, some time back. There was uh, uh, these headhunters. They were, uh, put it this way, you didn't want to be an outsider and befriend them. You might be dinner. And uh, they, uh, they were these headhunters, but their witch doctor was crying out to the God of nature. He knew there was something more. And one night, the Lord spoke to him in a dream and said, load up that particular donkey with, with goods, with supplies, have three of your elders follow it, and it will lead you to a man with pale skin who will give you the words of life. So that's what they did. They loaded it with supplies, slapped the old hiney, and they started walking it, you know, following this, this don't shake your head, Ty. <laughs> following, following, he was, they were following, that was, I just did that a second time just for you. So they're following this, this donkey, 
And it went a lot farther than they thought, over mountains and valleys and through riverbeds and all that. And finally, it comes to a clearing. It walks over to a hole in the ground, sticks its head in a hole in the ground as the elders are following it. And all of a sudden, a white guy with a red beard and red hair sticks his head out and looks at him. And they say in a dialect he can somewhat understand, give us the words of life. Tell us how to get to God. It's a missionary. And he's freaking out. He hasn't even opened his Bible and they're giving their own altar call. Almost the entire people group were converted. Why? Because they responded to the revelation they had and God gave them more. So men are without excuse. So it goes on, but if we reject that, for although they knew God, verse 21, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They began to worship creation. They were made in God's image to serve him. What they did is rejected God and made a God in their image and worshiped that. Therefore, God gave them over. Now listen to the next result. When man rejects God, and in rejecting God, man tries to find meaning for life. Now, Ecclesiastes, is, it speaks to this thing. When man rejects God and tries to find meaning in life outside of God, rejecting God, there is no God, I've got to find meaning in life. So what they do is it creates what is known as a philosophically it's called a closed system. In other words, they don't look outside the system of creation for meaning. So they're, they, they're, they're left with the material world. They're trying to find meaning. And that's why Ecclesiastes, a very depressing book, by the way. Anybody ever thought that was depressing? You wondered, God, why'd you put this in your book? Wow. I want to read that for my devotions in the morning. It says things like meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless under the sun. You work hard only to die and your kids squander your wealth. Something like that. It's like, wow, I'm so encouraged, you know. But notice what Solomon said. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless under the sun. He's talking about a closed system. You've got to look beyond the sun to find meaning. And without anchoring your reality in God, all you have is the you know, this, this temporary world to find meaning in. And so what does man go to? It always leads to here. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. There's a reason that cults gravitate towards weird sexual practices. A lot of times you'll see the leaders are the only one worthy to have a wife and have 52 of them or, you know, whatever. There's just these weird practices. Why? Because in trying to find meaning in a closed system, man begins to close in upon himself and look for meaning inside. And it will lead to sexual immorality. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of these. Okay, um, 
Look at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. So now there's a step beyond sexual immorality. Sexual revolution in one generation leads to greater perversion in the next generation. So we have uh, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, so he's defining what he meant by that phrase. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. What he's saying is that homosexuality and lesbianism, uh, male, you know, same-sex desire, and the celebration of that is the result of broken culture. Now, I know in this room there's, there's inevitably people who struggle with same-sex desire. It's not a sin to have those propensities. It's a sin to satisfy them outside the will of God. And there is healing, but until there is, and we covered this a couple of weeks ago, until there's healing, we need to live righteous and holy lives and present our desires before God. And go back a couple of weeks, and we, we address that. I, I don't want to take the time this morning. Although, I, I want to tell you, my heart breaks for people that are broken to the point where they are attracted to the same sex. Is it? Nobody would wake up desiring that. Now, there are people, there, there's, there is this new phenomenon called uh, adult-onset homosexuality. In, in psychiatric circles, and that, what that is, is that is a response to a culture who celebrates that type of behavior, and so for acceptance, validation, people get into that. I'm talking about those who have struggled. There are people who have struggled, for, even uh, from early adolescence, with same-sex same sex attraction, and there are reasons for that. There are, there are uh, commonalities in their history and their there uh, and, and there's certain profiles of personalities that some struggle with that more than others, just like there are certain profiles to alcoholism, and we all have our struggles, and we need to have grace and mercy and try to help people, but the fact is, just because the doctor told me I was an alcoholic didn't let me off the hook from the scripture that said, be not drunk with wine. I had to deny myself that desire and live in the pain of my anxiety without alcohol and be willing to do that for the rest of my life if so, if it needed be. Okay. So verse 27, in the same way men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. This is the final phase. And by the way, this is on a corporate level. Romans 1 is on a corporate level uh, what Paul addresses later on in Ephesians chapter 4 on an individual level. The, 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 it's really the journey of a backslider towards depravity. This is on the grand corporate scale, cultural scale. 
They have been filled, God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they do not, what not ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Which, by the way, young people, do you hear that one? Man, he includes that and that long list. Anyway, that was, that was a father speaking. Um, okay, verse 31, there was another father speaking. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although, and see, here's where it gets, this is the twilight of a culture, okay? We need to understand this. No culture has maintained its supremacy in the earth, its, its vitality, its production, creative production, uh, having reached this point. Although they knew God's righteous decrees and that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. When approval becomes public, when it becomes the sentiment of the greater culture, approving of those, that is the twilight of a culture. It dies within. It's an interesting study that if you look at Rome and even their... their uh, their art, Roman, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, when you carve out of, you know, their sculpture. Man, we, we, I need help this morning. Okay, there, this, will be, you're, uh, this is going to be two-part. I mean, uh, we're in a partnership this morning. You're going to have to help me. Okay, Roman sculptures. Early on, the sculptures of men were very masculine. They were men of stature and strength, and their their presentation of men towards the twilight of their culture became more infeminine. And it literally fell from within. Rome was never conquered. It just disintegrated from within. So, we see this outline in Scripture. So what I want to talk about this morning, where I want to get this morning in the next 27 and a half minutes, is I want to talk about how, and again, this is why I want to get done with this series. <laughs> Pornography as the completion of the sexual revolution. And those of you in this room that struggle with pornography need to see it for the evil that it is and the emptiness that it is. It will destroy, it will gut you of all meaning. So Father, we're asking this morning that you would speak to us very clearly. Lord, we're asking that your words would come through mine this morning. Lord, I ask that I would say nothing that you wouldn't intend and everything that you would. And Lord, that you would awaken our hearts. Father, I, I ask especially for the men in this room, Lord, that there would be a warrior, a protector, the men that you intended them to be, that we would take our place at the gates of culture and we would protect the innocent ones from the ravages of sexual immorality and especially porn. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, we, talked, we, we talked about how Rousseau and the Romantics in the 1700s 
introduced a particular ideology that is very prevalent today. Then we talked about how Freud built upon that foundation and introduced another layer to, to Rousseau's ideology that took us further down the rabbit hole. And then finally, the, uh, with Wilhelm Reich uh, and, and uh, Marcuse, there's other philosophers. And, and understand, many of these are philosophers. Some of them looked at themselves as scientists, but they weren't dealing with scientific data. They had a preconceived worldview that they, had, they carried with them before they ever did any experiments. Okay? So your philosophy carries with it preconceived ideas, presuppositions. In other words, you already have some conclusions that you bring with you, and the only way, the only way that you'll consider the data is through the lens of those preconceived ideas. That's your philosophy, your worldview. And if your worldview doesn't line up with the scriptures, you will end up in a dangerous place. Because again, ideas have consequences. What seems like a little, a little just a little degree of change. I've heard, I've been talking to a pastor friend of mine and he's going through it. I'm telling you, he's been challenged. Uh, he had a lady call him because he was talking about some of these issues and she said, but pastor, we don't live by the Bible anymore. Yes. If we don't have the Bible, I'm telling you, it's like we used to sing in Sunday school. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The unchanging reality of the kingdom as expressed in his written word. And when the rain came down, the floods came up, and the rock, or the house on the rock stood firm. And then we'd sing the other uh, uh, verse. Man, I'm having a hard time. The, rains came, uh, the foolish man built his house, and we'd do this instead of this. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. We need to have the worship leaders up here and do this. The <laughs> foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down, the floods came up, and this was the part all the kids liked because we'd yell it out. And the house on the sand went splat! If you're building your house on the shifting opinions of man, rejecting the all-wise God, then you're going to get yourself in trouble. And we think, well, I just don't agree with that one spot. I'm telling you, ideas have consequences. And God gave us the book to protect us. The Bible is not a rule book that God gives us as a killjoy that he arbitrarily said, you know what, I'm going to have 12. No, you know, I'm feeling good today. Let's just have 10 commandments. And arbitrarily, ah, let, uh, eeny, meeny, money. Okay, let's, let's not do that adultery thing. And uh, let, let's, let's not steal either. But these other things are okay. The laws of God are like the laws of physics. The laws of physics express reality. They're a way for us to understand reality. We call them the laws of physics. And you don't break the laws of physics. They break you if you violate them. There's a, there's a law of gravity. You say, well, I don't believe in that. Well, good luck. <laughs> the only way to overcome it is to 
is to harness a higher law like the law of aerodynamics. And so the laws of God, his book, is an owner's manual that tells us how life works. And you can reject it, but to your own peril. You'd be like an arrogant car owner that, you know, you got yourself a new, let's go with a Jag. You got yourself a new V12. And you're driving, and all of a sudden the, the little uh, dashboard light comes on. And you think, I don't, who are those people in, where, where are Jaguars made? Is it, is it German or Italy? I don't know. Uh, let's go with Chevy. Okay. Who are those guys in Detroit that, to tell me how to drive my car? I don't need them. You burn your owner's manual and then you blow up your car. Where do you go if, you, if you, the light comes on? You go to the book, the designer of the car made for you so that you can understand how this thing works. And you cooperate with the design and it runs fine. And if you don't, it won't. It's the same thing with life. So, let's do a little. So, the romantics. The moral imperative of the Romantics was realizing one's authentic self. Does that sound familiar? This was back in the 1700s. Rousseau, which is arguably, he was one of the first of the Romantics. He was, uh, a, he was a brilliant philosopher, but a very degenerate man. Uh, every time he had a kid, he immediately put it in the, in the orphanage because he said they're better off with someone else. At least he was consistent with his, theo- his philosophy. They believed this could... Okay, Realizing your authentic self could ultimately be achieved only by pursuing one's desires apart from the restrictive moral codes of society. Under Rousseau, man's nature was not the source of humanity's ills. Nurture, or the way society had attempted to shape man, was the problem. To Rousseau, the restrictive moral codes of society, and particularly Christianity, were the cause of man's problem. Man needed to be liberated from morality. Freedom was being unleashed to do whatever your heart desired. This unbiblical anthropology, or this unbiblical view of man, that refused to accept that man is fallen and in need of God, that we cannot trust ourselves, this unbiblical anthropology became the foundation of what we now know as the modern trans movement and many other manifestations in our culture. But it's the search for the authentic self. And what we need to realize is we can't trust our own judgment in navigating life. I'm not smart enough. When I tried to run my own life, I ended up in rehab. I ended up a homeless alcoholic. Maybe you ended up in a little more respectable place, but I'm telling you, we need God. And if we don't have a biblical view of man, that man has fallen and is not wise enough to lead himself, I've got to continually go back to the word and say, okay, what does the word say? I need the word confronting me and rebuking me and putting its finger on things in my life because otherwise, I'm telling you, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to the spirit of stupid (laughs) to do dumb things if the word of God is not confronting me and steering my life. And by the way, I use me because I didn't want to say it to you, but 
we're in the same boat, okay? Okay, so then Freud, Sigmund Freud. Freud built upon this sentiment. He succeeded in narrowing the pursuit of the authentic self down to a purely sexual one, defining the authentic self as driven solely by sexual desire. So Freud triumphed in defining man as a purely sexual being. And if you don't believe that he has triumphed and reshaped Western culture, just turn on an advertisement. They sell hamburgers with sex. What is the deal with that? I mean, everything has been sexualized. And I say that tongue in cheek, and you know, we, oh yeah, that's funny. But it's tragic, because it's reduced man to his sexual impulses. But it's layered over this idea that you, if you want to be the true you, you've got to be unbridled and pursue your desires. Freud said, and those desires are always sexual in nature. And he added to it, he said that even little children from birth are sexual in nature. So Rousseau's self-centered pursuit, which was personally untethered from any responsibility to anyone else, was now reduced to sexual pursuit. That, in Freud's mind, had to be restrained for the sake of society, leaving man ever frustrated. So Freud pictured man as this frustrated person that, that was just a pervert, that was always thinking and wanting more perverted sex, but he had to keep a lid on it for the sake of society. Well, at least he thought they had to keep a lid on it. Then along came Wilhelm Reich, himself a student of Freud, disagreed with the necessity of man's refrain, remaining frustrated. Instead, he saw him, according to Freud himself, the sexual orgasm itself as the therapeutic answer to man's ills. That's what Freud, Freud said that of Reich. The guy was twisted man. Reich, a Marxist, added to the Freudian view of man as purely sexual, his Marxism, which divides society between the oppressed and the oppressor, identifying Christianity and the nuclear family as the necessary casualties in the battle for man's freedom. So you understand, when you build these layers culturally, you understand why all of a sudden the church comes in the crosshair and so does the family. And you understand why we're seeing kids being exposed to such filth. And it's, it's being defended by some teachers' unions as if this is necessary. And it's mind-boggling to us. And we're like, what in the world are you thinking? Well, it's because they believe. See, education has been reinterpreted. The job of education used to be you've got to learn self-control Harness your passions, deny yourself, learn knowledge so that you can serve the greater good. Now, the job of education is we need to, we need to protect you from any inhibitions, any, any prohibitions on you finding out who you really are. We're going to even protect you from your parents. There are, there, I'm not saying all teachers do this, but I'm saying this is very, very widespread. And so kids are, they're being shielded so that it's, it's no longer them being imparted knowledge. It's us helping you to become your authentic self. 
What do you feel like? What are your feelings? What, what, what do you desire? What are your feelings? That's who you are. We want to validate your feelings. And to them, it's always of sexual nature. And children themselves are sexual in nature. And so it's introduced at a young age. And so the major impediment to their nirvana that they want to lead society into, these Marxist, Freudian Marxists, these leftists, what they want to create will require at, at best the marginalization of the church and the eradication of the nuclear family. Now I said this last week and it was really interesting. I, I read this book a couple of years ago, The Primal Scream. I talked about it. It was by a gal named Mary Eberhardt. She's a Catholic sociologist, brilliant gal, a precious gal. I love her writing. She's just so eloquent, but she's so insightful. And the, the, the brokenheartedness in which she's addressing uh, cultural ills is, just really broke my heart. I, I appreciate this woman. But she traced identity politics and the craziness we're seeing on the national scene down to the sexual revolution. And she talked about how the destruction of the family caused all this. What she reverse engineered, we need to understand, the Marxist from the Frankfurt School, out of which CRT came, critical race theory and critical theory itself, the, the Marxists that wrote this curriculum, they designed it. She reverse engineered what they planned in advance. Let's introduce sexuality. Let's introduce pornography. Get all of this. Expose people. It's going to break down the family. One, one of the greatest ways to cripple a dad from being the man he needs to be is to get him hooked on porn. He's no longer a leader. He's got a ring in his snout and he is led. And so it was, it was by design and it's destroyed the family and destroyed identity. And now we see ourselves in this situation and the church is the last great hope of this, gen, of this nation. Then we've got to be the family of God. So, Got 10 minutes. Both Freud and Reich viewed children from birth as sexually driven. Reich pushed, and again, I apologize uh, for those parents in the room uh, with children in the room. I'll try to be discreet here. Reich pushed this idea to its logical conclusion. One we are seeing today, expose children to sexually explicit material and behavior, take Rousseau's advice and free them from the restrictive morals of their parents and the church and grant them societal support and their pursuits and experimentation. This is all written, okay? These, this is, these are the things he wrote about. He wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. He gave a name to what we saw happen in the 60s and we're reaping the whirlwind today. Alfred Kinsey himself, a sexual deviant, granted a pseudo-scientific credibility to Freud's theories, actually aiding pedophiles in the abuse of on infants to record the data. This is the backdrop to what has become known as the sexual revolution. Okay, now, here's where, we, here's where I want to just land. 
the moral imperative of the sexual revolution is discovering and celebrating the authentic self through the pursuit of personal pleasure. Okay? What, whatever makes you happy. What are your feelings? What feels right to you? That's, that's where we're getting this safe places. Oh, you're, you're in... You're imposing on my feelings. You're offending me. And what it is, it's because man is now defined as the therapeutic man of feelings. It's whatever that his authentic, authentic self is his feelings. And so if you hurt his feelings, you're hurting him. You have attacked him. And so we're creating safe places. It used to be that education was a place to challenge people's beliefs, stretch them, cause them to think outside of their box. Now it's we're protecting them from any kind of uh, opposition to what they already believe about themselves. Let's validate that. So under this ideology, a partner is reduced to a me. Let me, let me say it again. The moral imperative of the sexual revolution is discovering and celebrating the authentic self through the pursuit of personal pleasure. Under this ideology, a partner is reduced to a means to personal end. That to hit you. People are just means to my end. I'm the center of the universe. You're the supporting cast. And I'm going to write you into my narrative as a way to make me happy. That's all you are to me. That's, that's that world. Therefore, finishes the revolution, reducing sex to a commodity and people to a means rather than the end. It reduces physical in intimacy to a, monetary, a momentary high, severing it from both the past and the future. It is the definition of living for the moment. Scripture talks about the fool says in his heart, let's eat, drink, and be married to her tomorrow and we die. The biblical definition of foolishness as opposed to wisdom. Foolishness lives for the moment and only for the moment. It's what makes me happy right now. Because, and who cares about the consequences because this is what I want to do. I might not even be alive in a moment, so I'm going to do this. And we reap the whirlwind. Wisdom, on the other hand, biblically, is always thinking to, for the long term. It's always looking at what are the effects, even generationally. And it's living a self-disciplined life in the moment so you can reap the benefits in the long term. That is wisdom. And the epitome of fool, being a fool and living for the moment is this ideology of sexual immorality and just doing whatever feels right. Pornography reduces it to a momentary high, severing it from both past and future. It is the definition of living for the moment. It severs sex from the past in that there is absolutely no history with the object of one's lust. No backstory other than the self-created fantasy manufactured by the consumer. It also severs it from the future in that there's no investment in the life of the object either. No commitment, no messy emotions to deal with, no relational misunderstandings to navigate, no need to defer some, to someone else out of love, not to mention no possibility of pregnancy. It's consumed alone and in the moment, and in the moment, it's all about us. With no roots in the past and no investment in the future, it is the epitome of self-absorption, and it leaves the human soul starving for intimacy. We have an epidemic of desperate intimacy in this culture because of pornography. 
It leaves the human soul underdeveloped and atrophied from a lack of use. The skill set required to sustain long-term relationships are never learned. The relational muscles essential for sacrificial love remain undeveloped. So you got people that are moving through life. Their earning power is growing. They're exercising those muscles. They know how to perform in other areas, but when it comes to that interpersonal and especially that most of personal relationships with a spouse of someone you're going to commit your life to, the skill set for that is atrophied. They're broken and unable to live in that way. The very mess avoided through pornography, the very process that is skipped in pursuit of the momentary high is actually the very thing longed for in the human soul. The thing we, well, you know, I have to go through all this. That's the very, the, the mess of that relational pursuit is the very thing the human soul is longing for. We think it's the culmination, the act of marriage, where two people come together and become one, but it's really the journey of becoming one. And sex only means something when it's the result of that commitment. And so... Let me say it again. The very mess avoided through pornography, the very process that is skipped in pursuit of the momentary high is actually the very thing the human soul longs for. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, God, why did you make things so complex? And why such a strong drive within the human being? <laughs> this is what I wrote down. God doesn't do anything halfway. What he creates is glorious and powerful and extremely dangerous to misuse. He loved mankind so much, he gave them this glorious power to become one. With all the pleasure, the potential pleasure of it, knowing that if you don't use it right, I'll give you the opportunity, I'll give you a book, I'll give you an opportunity to seek for me and find me if you seek for me with your own heart. But understand, the drives I gave you as a gift will utterly destroy you and leave you empty if you sever them from me in a relationship with me. Sex was created to be the zenith, the ultimate, the culmination of an ideology and relational structure. It inescapably is the climax of an ideology whether God's or man's. That's right, Romans 1 says, where it ended up is sexual immorality. It was the culmination of an atheistic ideology. And marriage, the human relationship that God ordained, the culmination of that is that male and female relationship where the two become one. It's an amazing thing. Physical intimacy was created to be the zenith. It was intended by God to be the consummating act between two covenant partners wherein they swear their love and fidelity to one another. The act was to make them one. To take such an intensity which by its very definition would be the unifying act making two into one and reduce it to a commodity consumed completely for and by one individual perverts it into the most powerful of drugs with an instant high followed by the most devastating of emptiness, gutting the most intimate 
of acts of any relational connection delivers a momentary potency but leaves the human soul longing for the real purpose behind it. It's like the crack of emotions. You're left broken. The crowning act, the ultimate result of sexual intimacy was to bind two committed souls into oneness. To create an intimacy unknown in any other relationship. Pornography attempts to seize the euphoria the euphoria void of the relationship to capture the prize without the price and it actually produces torment this is because whether they know it or not human beings long for the emotional connection that it was supposed to happen within and the emotional connection it's supposed to happen within it's called marriage you make the commitment on the front end and then only then do you get to access that level of intimacy because only uh, 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 the, the utter till death do us part type of commitment can handle the intensity of that level of intimacy. To really be able to give yourself to someone, you got to know they've committed for better or for worse. There's an old saying that women have sex for love and men love to have sex. This in itself is a fallacy. Both desire the pleasure which can only be attained within the mutually sacrificial relational connection of a committed relationship. There are deep unconscious needs met in the human soul in the act of marriage where value and affection is communicated in the most intimate of ways. This takes place within the context of one of the most powerful pleasures known to man. These two elements, number one, the communication of deep affection in an act of tremendous vulnerability where fidelity is once again committed to, and number two, that it being consummated with possibly the most pleasurable of physical and emotional human sensations. Those two things will never be separated. The package is married, marriage. The gift is the act of physical intimacy. If you try to seize the gift without the package, it'll leave you empty. It's always the culmination of something. Physical intimacy, this... This, the act of marriage is also the, always the culmination of something, either good or evil. It is always the zenith. It's either the zenith of God-designed human relationships in marriage or the zenith of humanism in the form of porn, where now man is just reduced to just himself. Pornography and the sexual revolution leaves, no, leaves man tormented and alone, focused inward. His life revolves around himself. He is his own source of truth. His own personal pleasure is his one goal. And this leaves him empty and tormented within this howling wilderness of man's own making. We hear again, it is not good for man to be alone. When God said that there was a whole lot more that he was communicating than we realize. Sex is viewed as the portal to self-fulfillment and the therapeutic means to unravel life's ills, according to Wilhelm Reich, one of the primary guys behind CRT. But severed from its intended context, the momentary pleasure becomes a torment, leaving man more empty and more unfulfilled. It is actually the intended context context of sex committed monogamous marriage that man longs for sex is simply the consummation of that reality there is no way to cheat the system and capture the prize without the process the hard work of relationships is the only way to give that act meaning it is got to give it god's intended meaning 
It was intended to be the mountain peak of that most intimate of human relationships, not the entry point at the base of the mountain. When made common, it fails to deliver. The momentary physical pleasure is experienced, but the emotional relation package it was to be delivered in was, is forfeited. Many double down, trying harder to extract the desired emotional fulfillment, only to continually come up empty. So I'm telling you that this thing that we're seeing in our culture that is so accessible even to our kids through a handheld devices, they can see all just unimaginable things. Parents, don't give your kids unfiltered access to the internet. They aren't capable of handling it. Some of the, of the 30, 40, and 50, and 60-year-old men in this room are not capable of yet handling it. It's not a knock on you. The knock is when you won't admit it and you, you don't get accountability. It's more mature to not be able to handle it and say, hey, I need help, Make, keep me accountable, and put, put some safeguards on my phone than a guy who says, I can handle it and occasionally falls. The guy, that guy over here who absolutely can handle it is more mature than this guy because he has availed himself of accountability. We all have our weaknesses and God wants to strengthen those things until we're there. Let's do whatever we have to do to live holy. But I'm telling you, this thing this lie that has been perpetrated, we, we look out there and we wonder what's going on in our culture. And what we don't realize is we're often complicit. We're in agreement with some of it by our behavior and, and the ideas that we've adopted. And God wants you as men to be completely satisfied with life without a woman if need be. And you can be. And I would propose to you, you really can't handle a wife until you are. Because otherwise, you put it this way, if you need her, you can't lead her. You will simply lick your finger and see where the winds are blowing. And no woman, even women who don't think they want that, I'm telling you, by design from God, they do. The man is called to be the head of the home, not in some dominant way of just barking out orders, but he's to lay his life down. He should be the first to apologize, the first to get up and serve, the, the one that is going the extra mile because we are the servants of our households. And the first thing you gotta do is harness your own potential through self-discipline to qualify for marriage. All right, let's stand. We're six minutes over. I, I apologize. I'm gonna, I want to pray for you this morning. Just put your hands up before the Lord. Father, I'm asking God that you would touch each of us. Lord, let's, let's as a prophetic act, just extend your hands towards our youth this morning, would you? I know there's kids in other places in the room. We're praying for you too, but God, we ask, Lord, that you would send revival to our youth and Lord, that you would make them shining examples of strength and integrity. Men and women of God, Lord, who harness their potential for you. That live above their desires, Lord. That they don't view themselves as the sum total of their desires. That they side with you, even against themselves when need be. Lord, raise them up.
And Father, I ask for us, Lord, for wisdom and God consecration. Lord, we're asking, send your fire. Let your fire burn through this house, Lord. Purify your bride. Lord, I'm asking that you would go against any, uh, Lord, anything in us that's contrary to you. Lord, we're saying, go after it. Burn it out, Lord. And when we cry, stop, ignore us. Lord, burn it out. Father, have your way in us. And Lord, we're asking, save this nation and the nations of the earth. Lord, with a bride that will stand in the day of trial. Lord, that will stand for truth. And Lord, give us wisdom and compassion for those struggling with their identity. Lord, let, never let us be those who are callous and uncaring. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.